Welcome to the RC Roundtable Podcast, where we discuss the latest RC hobby news, events, model reviews, and a whole lot more. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the RC Roundtable. Uh, we had promised uh, that we were going to take a break for the Christmas holiday, but uh, a couple you of things... You lied. We lied. Uh, we, a couple of things in the news came up in regards to some very important issues with uh, the model aviation community and the FAA, and we had an opportunity to talk with our special guest, Mr. Eric Williams, and something we just could not pass up, so we thought we'd uh, do a... Another issue before the end of the year. We've got a couple more days before New Year's. So we uh, would really like to welcome Mr. Eric Williams onto the show. Uh, Mr. Williams is the AMA Vice President for District 2. And, and among other things, he sits on the Aeronautical Knowledge Testing Board uh, for the AMA. So we are very happy to have his expertise in here to talk to uh, us about two very important topics uh, number one, of course, the before-mentioned Aeronautical Knowledge Testing Board. And also something that just dropped is the proposed um, remote ID for unmanned aeronautical systems, aircraft systems, excuse me, uh, in the notice of proposed rulemaking. So we intend to cover those two topics on this show, and uh, I encourage everybody to listen carefully, and hopefully we can really uh get through this together and see what options we have in the future and with the FAA. So without any further ado, Mr. Eric Williams, welcome to the show. Hey, well, hello, guys. Pleasure to be back with talking to the guys and uh, also uh, to be with your listeners again. Oh, great. Yeah, it's great to have you back. If, if you recall from our listeners, uh, we had uh, Eric on some episodes ago during the the election election AMA election yeah the AMA election uh era uh, period when uh, a couple of months ago when you could vote in for, for president and vice president and whatnot and so he was gracious to come on our show and discuss topics pertinent to the AMA and modelers and and I guess we didn't scare him off because he's back <laughs> <laughs> well we paid him this time oh yeah <laughs> the check, the check, the check went yeah well yeah it took a while but it did i guess i'm too dumb not to know when to stop i guess so here i am <laughs> all right well let's get going uh the first up is the uh the topic that we've been hearing coming down the line for quite a while we heard it again at the ama expos i think both east and west and that's the aeronautical knowledge tests and this is if i remember correctly uh, a proposed uh knowledge test for um I, I don't know if it's a license or just a a, a Eric Eric explain it. Yes, he's, Eric. He's, the, he's Eric, more can of you, an expert than you, Fitz. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna fudge it. So Eric, can you explain to us what, as you know, as it stands now, what the aeronautical knowledge test? Will well, sure. And let me just a couple of points of clarification. So, in the new FAA uh, funding bill from 2018, there's a requirement for a knowledge and safety test for unmanned recreational uh, flyers. And uh, the board is actually the AMA, excuse me, the FAA's board. It's not the AMA board. It's the uh, FAA uh, Knowledge and Safety Testing Board for the Unmanned Recreational Test that uh, I had the um, uh, pleasure of, of sitting on a couple months ago. And uh, I represented AMA, and, and really I was the sole subject matter expert 
from the recreational side, uh, everyone, virtually everyone else was uh, FAA folks, um, in representing the position of the modeler. And um, so I did, and um, we crafted a test, and I'm happy to you know, tell you and the listeners more about that, whatever you'd like to know. Um, I will say the test, we, we thought it was going to come out in, <coughs> excuse me, in, uh, thought it was going to come out in December, but for whatever reasons, it, it hasn't come out with the FAA. I do want to preface what I'm saying by, you know, m- my job was to be on the board to devise the questions. It's not about when the test will be out, per se, or necessarily the form and fashion and, you know, administering the test, although I do know a little bit about that from working on the board. But the board was really about looking at what should be the questions on the test. So you had input onto the questions that were going to be in a test. Oh, absolutely. The board reviewed every question. I will say we started with an enormous number of questions, at least before I was on, on the board, uh, because it pre-existed uh, my being asked to, to, to represent uh, AMA on the board. And there were dozens and dozens of questions. Uh, I, I, I think my understanding is it could have been upwards of 50 or 60, which is just a... Yeah, just a total, let's, I'll be nice and say totally unnecessary number. And the way it looked when the board was done is that we crafted a test that was probably going to be a little bit less than 25 questions. Can you give us any kind of indication of what kind of questions the test will cover? Sure. Sure. I'll be happy to. So the, um, I will say that the test is designed to be educational and, and not test in, in, in the terms that, you know, you've got to study for it or it would be highly difficult, but it, would, but it would be an educational experience. So that means in the actual questions, I, I've said to a lot of people, I consider them vanilla. They may be challenging for some, but you have to remember they're geared to be able to be um, understood by someone down to the age of 13 years old um, and to be, so does that mean somewhat simplistic? Well, I think it does. Um, and the questions, I, I will also define them as saying they're, they're kind of questions that probably anyone that's been flying at an AMA field or flying for any short period of time shouldn't have much difficulty at all in answering. They're kind of the things we know already. And uh, I can get into that and be happy to. But um, again, my role is the way I saw it was to represent the modeler, not make the test overly burdensome from my input, and to make it the kind of things that we would want a modeler to know that, say, would be flying at an AMA field uh, safely and responsibly. Um, really just about that. So are we talking uh, the something a, a private pilot would know, air, say airspace restrictions and that so forth, or more no. the minutia of model aviation? Well, not really nothing the difficulties of a private, what a pilot, private pilot would know. I mean, a couple of things touch on it. But exceptionally superficially, I mean, I, I'd be happy to run down a few examples of the kinds of subject areas that we covered, um, such as what's the definition of a rec- recreational unmanned flyer? Uh, basically, that means um, are you getting paid to fly or not fly? Not getting paid, right? Uh, what is visual line of sight? Um, do you understand, see, and avoid? Um, what does the new law require that you provide to law enforcement uh, if asked? Uh, what should you do to avoid a collision with manned aircraft? Um, uh, little qu- questions about TFRs in regard to how are airspace restrictions related to VIP movement at major sporting stadiums or, or mass gathering events. How is that communicated? Uh, where is ATC approval required to fly an unmanned aircraft? 
Now, we're getting into a little bit of that now with our letters of agreement um, with clubs that are in controlled airspace. And I think most AMA members and modelers have heard about that. And, and that's where it gets a little bit more, not much, but a little bit more detailed in terms of understanding, okay, so how can I fly an ATC air in a controlled area? Uh, how do I know, get authorization and so forth to do that? Um, so, so it sounds like you're focusing on rules, regulations, and safety aspects. We are, it is, and it does. Um, you know, some of the things are where must your FAA registration number appear? Well, we've been dealing with that with three years with registration numbers. The only real change to that in the new law is that instead of being inside your aircraft, it must be on your aircraft. Um, so there's the answer right there, right? Where does it appear? Um, uh, you know, w w when are good times to check your aircraft for needed repairs? Um, all of this is designed, and I have to say with the FA folks that I happen to work with, it was designed to be educational, to be very, um, I, I guess, to reflect, again, the kinds of things we teach people that come into clubs and to learn to fly and be safe and responsible. And it's not much different than that. And because of that, um, there may be a couple of questions that would be new to people, uh, maybe some questions about ATC airspace or those kinds of things, controlled airspace. But for the most part, it's the things we know anyways as modelers. So, Eric, uh, I'd like to ask about the test. Is it going to be online? Do you have to go somewhere to take it? And I'm also curious if you have to have an FAA registered number before you can take the test. So the testing is intended to be online. Uh, that's that's what we understood from the testing board. Um, there's also the possibility that um, the FAA can designate, and this is in law, uh, they can designate other organizations who administer the test. And that conceivably can happen through AMA or other entities that have uh, made given notice to the FAA they'd like to be involved in, in some way, shape, or form, perhaps, in administering the test. But that still all is, is yet to be seen. As far as uh, being registered and taking the test, um, the FAA has not officially made that clear yet, if one will need to be registered before taking the test. Uh, presumption could be that you could take do, do both of them separately. And the reason is, is that when you're registering the aircraft, you're not registering a particular aircraft, you're sort of registering yourself. And I can't see of any reason why you shouldn't be able to take the test if you don't happen to own an aircraft yet. Um, but you know, the uh, exact answer to that, we'll have to wait to see if the FAA sees any differentiation in that. At the moment, I don't. Right. If you look at it like driving a car, most people get their license before they buy the car. So you would think if somebody has a kid or some, or they're just interested, they want to test the waters before they dump a bunch of money into equipment. So I would hope you do not have to have the, the registration before you take the test i understand that terry but my my complaint is going to be how many pieces of paper do you have to have on you are you going to have to have a, a certification that you took the test and have an faa registration certificate as well show me your papers well unfortunately the answer to that that question is yes uh in the law if a police officer were to approach someone flying an unmanned aircraft the operator of the unmanned recreational aircraft um is required to provide their proof of registration and proof of test passage. Um, what proof of test passage will look like, I don't know yet. Presumably something online that will say, hey, you passed. Um, and maybe you can keep that in your smartphone or whatever the case may be. 
but I'll, that'll be the FAA to determine how they want to uh, administer that part. Maybe we covered this before, but do you perceive that there's going to be a cost associated with the test? At the moment, I do not. But, you know, that's at the moment. And as we know, things change. So who knows what will happen in regard to this? Do you happen to know how long your license will last? Is it a take one time like a driver's license and it's it's good for life? Uh, at the current time and when we crafted the test, it's a one and done. Take the test and you're done. Sweet. Um, there's okay. there's nothing in the law that I'm familiar with in the FAA uh, authorization bill that requires re reoccurring testing. It says you must pass a knowledge and safety test only. That's 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 how it's defined. Okay. Well, this is kind of out there, and I apologize if this seems <laughs> conspiracy theory. But you know, how are hobby shops going to handle these this um, this test? Do they have to check for an ID before they can provide someone with a an aircraft to to show proof of of a flying test? I mean, could they be considered you know handing an aircraft to an unlicensed pilot? I don't think so. There's nothing in the law that I'm aware of that puts that responsibility on a hobby shop owner. Um, you know, you can buy, at least in my state, you can buy an automobile without having a driver's license. Um, you probably can't drive it out of the lot, but you can buy the automobile. So I don't think it's going to come to be that restrictive at the, at the hobby shop level. Of course, it's going to be more burdensome. Um, we clearly see that and wonder how much of that's frankly necessary. But at, at the moment, the way we see it, it won't be a requirement at all. Do you expect that the FAA is going to require um, model aircraft manufacturers to have some type of form inside every new aircraft that says you must be a licensed pilot, you must be FAA registered before you can attempt <laughs> to, to fly this device? No, I'm not aware of any such requirement at the moment. It might not be a bad idea to educate the public um, so people aren't. Um, you know, unknowingly, um, you know, violating the law. I don't think the manufacturers want to put anyone in that position. So maybe that would be a good idea for them to do it. And some maybe have plans to even do that. I don't know. Can you explain how someone under 13 is going to have to be able to fly an aircraft now? How, how, what, how does that situation work? Well, at the moment, and you have to understand that 13 years old is sort of a, I don't want to say magical number, but it's an interesting number, an interesting age in that, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but it's based in you know some parts of law, uh, including the uh, Child on Online Privacy Act and so forth, and, and the 13-year-old mark age marker for that, as well as uh, legal responsibility of one being responsible for their own uh, actions and so forth at a certain age. So I, I presume it's those factors and maybe others that the FAA chose that. However, in practice, the way we understand it is that a child can operate an aircraft, but the aircraft has to be represented, excuse me, has to be registered by someone who's of the legal age to register it. So that means if there's a 10-year-old, they, they can't register it themselves, but their parent could. Um, the same thing will probably, and I have to stress probably, hold same true for same for the test, where the child can operate it, but there has to be someone there who has passed the test and who that aircraft is registered in their name. 
just a personal side note <laughs> on behalf of myself. I really dislike that approach. And I, and I guess my solution, my personal solution, trying to meet the halfway point was if you, if you, if you're a parent who is not, does not have any interest in model aviation and you have a child who is, you know, your desire to go take a test or register is probably very, very slim. And so you may discourage them from getting into the hobby, which I think is a huge burden uh, for new kids. But hope it would be, you know, obviously doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any dialogue that says you can't take your child to a club where club members have registered and taken the test and, and let the child fly anything that's there, which is great. You know, I'd, I'd like that to happen. But I, I have an 11-year-old kid, and I'd like to, it's, it's hard for me to think that, you know, he, he, is, he is burdened by the fact that someone has to be licensed. And it, it will be me, but, if, you know, God forbid something happens to me, there is no one there, there's my wife's not going to register. <laughs> God bless my wife. You know, so he, he's he's kind of stuck under the situation. Is it a big deal? I, maybe not. But I, it just made me sad to, to think about that. And I, I really hope we can work, work, find easier ways around that, especially to inspire parents to take their their interested kids to local clubs to fly. Well, I, I couldn't agree more so. Um, you know, I've been we've been fighting this fight for against state, local, and federal legislation and regulation for more years than I want to count, and particularly in District 2, uh, because we have a lot of urban areas and so forth, and we've been fighting this. And, you know, one of our arguments has always been that the tradition of model aviation has been that parents would take their son or daughter or whatever uh, to a um, local schoolyard, a park, or whatever, and enjoy model aviation. You know, in the 50s, it was probably control line, and the 60s or 70s, it became something else. And um, that, that's a very strong thing and very important to the future of this country, both in terms of those people that become uh, airline captains and also otherwise aviation professionals. But also just, it, it teaches scientific skills and appreciation for hands-on stuff and on and on and on. Um, and, and so I definitely agree with, with your sentiments about that. Um, I would say that you know, in terms of what's going in now with the question of a 13-year-old and the test and registration, it seems that the FAA is somewhat hampered by law on that. I'm not trying to give them any kind of a free pass, but it seems to be their situation the way I see it, um, that, that they're kind of stuck with and how they have to meet various laws that are applicable to this. Um, I would hope it wouldn't affect um, you know, our youthful aviators. And frankly, we have we have people under the age of 13 that can fly a lot better than I ever thought I would hope to do, right? Amen. Or dream Amen to, to that. you know? The young kids are amazing. I mean, you see them, it's like it's wired to their brain. They just pick it up almost instantly. It would be a shame to really put a hamper on that. Well, I have a question, but I also have a comment. I'll do the comment first. And this goes back to something Lee said a minute ago, that when you were talking about the testing, you said that it may not be a big deal. And you're right. And the registration, we all said, well, it may not be a big deal. So individually, all these things we're doing, you can assess and kind of convince yourself that it's not a big deal. But it's the culmination of all these things coming together that is suddenly becoming a big deal. So it's, it's the bits and pieces approach that's really starting to add up at this point, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I would I would agree 100% with that sentiment. And, you know, it's like registration. AMA said four years ago that when three, four years ago when registration first came on that we thought maybe registration at some level was necessary. 
we just didn't think the, the level at which it came and, and, and the way it's kind of panned out was really necessary. The same thing is true with testing, to be quite honest with you. Um, you, know, uh, you know, I don't know if I use the word big deal. I didn't necessarily mean it that way. I don't think I did. But, you know, what I'm saying about the test is that the good news and the, the bad news in the test is that it has to be taken by people who, you know, can do this stuff in, in, the, in their sleep and that, you know, could have written the test, frankly. Um, the, the good news in any of it is that it's, it's an educational experience for people coming in and it follows, for the most part, the things that we know anyways as responsible model pilots. Right. The question I was going to ask is, I thought that I saw something online, a list from the FAA that included all the entities involved in the test-making process. And it seemed, I noticed the AMA was on there, but also numerous uh, model aviation-related businesses, most of them drone-related. So, were there companies involved in the test making process? Well, let's unpack that. So okay. in the test making process, if we're talking about just the questions, no, there was not. Not on the board that I sat on. Okay. Uh, it was FAA folks. It was myself. It was a representative of a company that specializes in kind of crafting tests and questions and What's the right way to ask a question? That sort of stuff. Okay. Not the technical expertise of model aviation, but sort of the, you know, professionalism of, of a way a question is asked and the answers that are that are offered. Sure. And, and, and that was it. So in terms of making the test, unless the FAA changes things unbeknownst to me and maybe others that were on the board, that's the test. They would never do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. But what what the was sent out recently with that list was about administering the test. Um, the thing that I find a little bit peculiar in that is that since law itself prescribes the test can be given by um, the FAA and some other designees, and they may use a different word, I can't recall in the legislation, but, you know, it's almost like, well, the test is the test, right? And it's going to be online, right? So what is there to add about administration of the test? I don't know. Um that'll be up to whatever the FAA decides. Okay. So those companies on that list may or may not be involved in the administration. Yeah, that's an FAA decision. That's nothing the board took up. We weren't even at that point. Uh, we were just at the point of creating questions that we thought reasonably reflected the requirements in the law and would, would educate people about those. So, they would understand their legal responsibilities and the requirements of flying safely and responsibly. Okay. Well, that's reassuring then. So two part question here. You worked with other people to put the test questions together. Does the FAA have the right to create other questions that none of you guys discussed? Could they, because they, could they throw in some questions that were never part of the, on the table? Well, let me put it to this. I'm sorry, but I have to say, I guess you'll have to ask the FAA that. Um, the FAA is not, um, well, I guess I would say they could do it. I'll just put it that way. It's conceivable. Um, you know, the, the questions I would presume are going to have to go some other hoops normally through the FAA, maybe their legal department, maybe a few other things. I don't know. Uh, but su substantively, um, there was nothing that was, to my understanding, that would be changed on the questions. Okay. And the second part of the question, 
uh, or this topic is, is there a time set that says this test will stay this way for a certain amount of time before they revisit changing all the questions again or adding more? I mean, I don't know how, I mean, basically they've asked your, for your advice, y'all sat down, y'all talked about it, but is, is it going to be like questions based on a certain group and then maybe two years, three years from now, they could do this test all over again and unfortunately that make it even harder possibly? Well, it's, that's an interesting question. I guess that's going to have to depend on what the FAA feels about that and, you know, the substantive experience of the of the test and people taking it going forward. I'll, I'll say this much that might help answer that question is that the testing board realizes that, um, uh, well, let me take a step back and say that you know, there was some consideration in some circles, not necessarily the testing board, that, well, should there be a huge pool of tests, like I believe there is in the ham radio test? And then when you go to actually take the test, you're given a smaller subset, and those are the, test, the questions you get. And then, let's say, uh, somebody else takes the test a week later, the ham test, and it's a different set, but it's part of the bigger pool. Um, the testing board, um, it was pretty... Uh, complete and ubiquitous across the board that um, that shouldn't be done because this is supposed to be an educational experience. It's supposed to be a knowledge learning experience. It's also supposed to be a, um, a no-fail test. Um, there are a couple of advisory boards and other things that AMA sat on uh, in the months leading up to this that that was echoed, was that it should be an educational experience and basically no-fail test. So what that means is there will be a preamble to the to the test. Now, some people might call it a course. Maybe the FAA will. I don't know. I think it's going to be a few minutes where you sit at your computer. They tell you about the things that are going to be on the test, presumably provide information so you're knowledgeable about it, and then give you the test. Um, if you get a question wrong, it'll take you back to that information so you can reread it and go back. So I think it would be pretty much virtually impossible to fail the test unless you really tried to. <laughs> Here's, <laughs> I'm going to steal Terry's email address. I'm going to log in and get every answer wrong and see what kind of crazy <laughs> I put him in. <laughs> and, and part of the rationale that was discussed on the board was that, well, you know, as soon as the test comes out, the answers will probably be out on the Internet, you know, in 15 minutes. And so does it make sense to allow that to happen or does it make it sense to try to make it an educational experience in particular for those that are not familiar with the content or maybe as well as they should be that they would go through this course preamble, as I call it, um, learn a little about it, then answer the questions and they're done. Well, and that you, you brought up something I wrote down here. I wasn't sure I was going to ask, but my son's currently uh, slowly taking his driving course online. And the site he goes to actually times the amount he watches the videos. And so I was wondering if there was going to be a training video first for this test that you'd have to sit through and, and watch and you know go from one course to the other before you actually took the test at the end so that it would confirm that you sat and watched the video and then that you achieved the tests that per, you know pertain to that section. But in this case, you're just going to get something to read and then take the test? Yeah, my presumption is that's what it will be. I, I I'm not on the part of the uh, the team that's that's devising the test itself in terms of what it looks like or feels and the experience online. I presume it'll have you know some text, may have some graphics, whatever that'll explain some things, uh, and then you go on to the next section. 
uh, that I don't think it's going to be tremendously long, to be quite honest with you, from what I understand. Oh, let's hope to God there's no, like, you know, Dennis the drone that's telling you how to pass the test. Follow Dennis as he moves along into the safety of the NAS. I don't know. I will say one thing, though. When you mentioned Dennis the drone, it seems sort of academic or youthful. Um, you know, one of the things that I brought up to the testing board was the difficulty of the questions in terms of the words that were used. And we actually ran the questions through some uh, uh, reading score um, tools that tell you what, what reading level it is. And there weren't there were some questions that were of a much higher reading level. And that made no sense. And the board did work to uh, give them all credit. We all did to reduce that difficulty. So it doesn't become kind of a, for lack of a better expression, you know, intensely difficult high flute and test that you got to take and learns all kinds of new terminology. Uh, there might be a few things that'll be new to modelers. It wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think it's going to be anything that they're going to find beyond maybe, uh, maybe a few questions, a couple of questions that, you know, m might be something new, but nothing dramatic the way I see it. Fitz, you've been quiet. Do you want to jump in? Uh, I don't think I have much more to ask. Uh, I guess at this point, the test is coming. There's no chance of it not happening, if I recall. Not that I'm aware of. It's prescribed in law. You know, I, I want to make that clear is that, you know, um, you know, it's in law. So there's no changing that, really, unless you go to your congressman and actually change the law. And that's simply not going to happen in the current FAR authorization period. So that it was an inevitability. Um, and, you know, my role on it was to as again, represent the modeler, let the rest of the people on the board understand that because there are a number of times I had to do that. I had to say, look, you know, I have to understand what it's like to stand at a flight line, to see aircraft. You know, when it came to talk about visual line of sight, I explained that we have a much better uh, visual orientation of the airspace than a full-scale pilot does. We can see 360 degrees around a manned aircraft. We can see in front of it, behind it, above it, below it, beyond it. From a fixed position. And when you're in a full-scale aircraft, you can't do any of that. The other thing we can do is we can hear aircraft. You know, quite frequently, we might hear an aircraft coming before we see it. Yeah. Um, and we don't get air sick or vertigo. That's <laughs> true. Just, hey, just trying to get it out there. <laughs> there are some benefits to keeping your feet on the ground. <laughs> I don't know. Control line. Right. So that was, you know. Ah, control line. We don't like those guys. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, wait, that's a great question. I'm assuming control line people don't have to take this test. Is that correct? Um, my understanding at the moment is they wouldn't need to, but we'll have to see how that's defined. I don't know. It's, you, you know, that's, guys. That's, that's a question. Control line in free flight, yeah. quite honestly, has been something that's vacillated over probably at least the last two or three years in regard to registration, not how are they considered, different category, back and forth, and, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure yet if the FAA is 100% settled on where that lands, um, so we will see. Well, you forgot model rocketry. I mean, I, I am shocked that that hasn't been an issue for them. Shh. I know you're saying shh, but, I mean, we never thought it'd be this far, so we need more members on our team. Well, the rocket guys need to be joining in as well, because they're, they're going to be next. I was, excuse me, I was going to say AMA has always covered, at least in my experience, model rocketry for our members. 
in terms of you know RC cars, RC boats, and model rockets um, within our programming and our insurance and so forth. Um, I think the the differentiation I think you'll see is um, from what I've heard from those in the FAA. The difference is is that a unmanned recreational model aircraft can navigate the airspace. A model rocket cannot. It's at the whim of its propulsion. Then it's at the whim of the winds. Uh, I don't know. I've seen a couple of pilots on the whim of uncertainty. <laughs> so, but okay, I, I, I respect what you're saying, yes. But uh, okay, I had to get that laugh in. Not, not that they couldn't necessarily present a hazard. I, extreme possibility. I, I shouldn't say extreme. I would say it, it, it's a possibility. Uh, the, the probability, I'm not sure, but... It definitely could be a possibility, depending on where the rockets launch. But I don't think they have too many issues. All right. I think we need to move on to steaming pile of FAA number two, which is Lee. Uh, all I can say is I've I've had to go walk away from my desk a couple of times today. And I've actually got a big drink in my hand because... I, I mean, it's been bad enough with all the stuff. And you know what, Terry? I'm gonna. I wrote something down when you said it because you are absolutely correct. It's the little things that have been piling up, and this remote ID and registering all your aircraft, which is which is in this proposal, is going to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Kind of a death well, from a thousand paper cuts kind of deal. Well, it I is. would argue that this one is no longer in the little things category. This is no. This uh, this is a big a, thing. yeah. And, and you know what, it's going to be hard to talk about this because I, I got to tell you guys, um, you know, the previous uh, NAPRM, right? Is that how you pronounce it? NPRAM? The Notice of Proposed proposal. Rulemaking, yeah. yes. There you go. So when that one came out for uh, talking about distance, you know, avoidance and stuff, that was really meant for, for like Part 107. It really felt like Part 107. We haven't heard about that from again uh, about that situation again. But this bad boy right here is going to hurt 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 the hobby and i i'm gonna just bow out right now and say guys i'm gonna save a lot of my my comments uh, i'll respond to what terry and fitz and eric have to say but i've been writing since last night reading this document i haven't even finished it yet but i'm finding things like hidden in this proposal which if we don't pull out and and share with everybody so that they understand exactly what the fa is doing to try to tear apart this hobby we're going to lose big time. And like just I was talking to Eric and I just found this piece. I'm going to jump right to it. But there's a piece in here that talks about removing a section uh, of the Reauthorization Act. It's Section 48, 100B, where a recreational pilot registers and you get a registration ID and you put that on your aircraft. They want to do away with these two sections so that you have to register every aircraft and have a serial number for it. And I'm telling you guys, it's like registering your guns. They want to know exactly what you have. They want to know who made it. They I and mean, I know it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I'm not kidding you. Once they know exactly what you have, I wouldn't be surprised if they came back and saying you're going to have to pay a fee for every aircraft that you own because you have to register it. And you have to have some type of way of having a remote ID system working. So, and with that, now that I've got off my little soapbox, I'll let you guys continue. Well, we haven't actually said what the new topic is. Well, if they don't know, <laughs> they are hiding. They are like uh, somewhere in a cave. Yes, it is the proposal for remote ID, robot identification, on all UAS. So basically, they want our little toy airplanes to have transponders, so the air traffic controllers can identify where our airplanes are flying. 
It's funny you say transponder because they're very specific that it can't be a transponder in the, the definition of full-scale aircraft. They were talking about some type of system that has to be utilized via the internet. I'm sorry, just some of the words that they're using here are just so silly. That some magic have widget. Some magic models. connection, yes, that always provides them with who you are, where you are, what you are, how, what's your altitude, where are you located, you know, what's your destination. I'm not kidding you. And yeah, so it is, it is their proposal and what they think should be done so that every UAS can be identified to anybody who wants to know. Yeah. It's not just them, it's anybody. Eric, you want to jump in? <laughs> <laughs> My seat just got hotter, let me tell you. Um, well, you know, the, um, the NPRM that just came out, it's, you know, really fresh. Um, I certainly have not an opportunity to, to digest, read all of it, let alone digest all of it. Um, I will say there are parts of it that are very troublesome to me um, and, and perhaps are, are, are unnecessary in particular the portion in regard to uh, uh, fixed flying sites. Um, you know, I, I'll speak for myself, not officially from AMA, but for myself in saying that, you know, I think the concept of a skateboard park type location where it's known that there are unmanned aircraft there would serve the entire aviation community well because that would be the spot that they know, hey, that's what's occurring here. And let's face it, the FAA does this with all sorts of things, right, that they identify. They have uh, areas that are prohibited areas you can't fly in. They have other areas they identify. So why that couldn't be done as the method of identifying for ID purposes those flyers there on a continuing, you know, infinite basis in many years to come, I don't know. But it seems from what some sections of this proposed rule say, that's not going to be the case forever. Yeah, there was an interpre interpretation that at some point, no new clubs could be registered with the FAA for that purpose. Isn't that just crazy? I mean, that's I read that too. It says after 12 months, they would close down any further applications. So I'm going to take a leap here, and I haven't read this specifically in the law, so take a big grain of salt. But my understanding would be that um, at those locations, remote ID equipage or some technology, either using a cell phone or whatever to do the ID, would be required um, at some point in time in the future, several years down the road. I don't know how many years, but years down the road. It doesn't mean the site's going to go away, but from what I understand and what I'm taking of it, it means that it is, there's going to be a fixed time at which you can fly there without that equipage or without using a particular uh, internet-based application. Just on the surface of this, I see quite a few problems with this because there's no guarantee that you have any type of internet service. Uh, there's also seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of the model airplane community and how we work with our models. And it, it seems like there's a lot of assumptions going on by the FAA that are not true or 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 just have a misunderstanding uh, of of hobby quality model airplanes versus commercial drones and it seems like we're all being lumped into these kind of regulations that even a technology may not even be there to do this with any type of um, uh, 
uh, what do you want to call it, um, guarantee that it'll work? Well, you know, um, I'm not a full-scale pilot, I would know, but, you know, I believe ADSB for a good good number of years now was going to be a requirement to come in in 2020 for full, all full-scale aircraft. Yes. I understand if the FAA now has some kind of a workaround for that. It got delayed, um, yes, because no, yeah. people weren't able to update in time. Right. So, you know, here's a good example. I mean, yeah. we're not we're not talking about model aircraft that, you know, maybe start at 100 or 150 dollars. You know, we're talking about all kinds of stuff, you know, multi-thousand dollar private aircraft that for whatever reason they can't seem to do this with. And but now they're going to require it of something that maybe weighs oh what? Anywhere from 2 to let's say 10 or 15 pounds on average. Um, yeah, you got the, a lot of sense. the weight and power requirements may not even be obtainable for what they're asking. They may not. Again, you know, I, I, I want to preface all my comments here because I, I haven't, you know, read that deeply into the proposed rule. It's pretty long. Um, but um, from what I'm seeing, uh, I don't know if all those details were played out in the proposed rule. And that's a good point. This is a proposed rule. It's not the rule, but... Uh, it sounds like they're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall, uh, so to speak, to see what sticks. And uh, it's 300 pages of stuff to go through. So, and it just dropped what a day or two ago. I yeah, I believe it was yesterday. So yeah, so <laughs> this is all really early, early look. Uh, but there's already some pretty large threads on the various uh, bulletin boards and news groups and that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's a lot that people are not liking, understandably. And I guess for us is you know, we, as modelers, look to the AMA as our advocates in this. And so can you can you tell us at least in the short term what role the AMA is going to play in this? Well, I can look at history and tell you what we've done. I, you know, I'm not the final decision maker on what we'll do. And again, I don't speak nationally for AMA. I'm a vice president of District 2. But, mm. um, you know, uh, take it for what it's worth. And, and the experience I've had working with lawmakers and going D.C. and being on the testing board, um, what will probably occur is, well, there's going to be a comment period, uh, which will start, I believe it's going to be December 31st. I'm not sure. Uh, on a 60-day comment period. So if we follow what we've done historically, which I would think we certainly will, AML, AMA will reach out to our members. Uh, we'll have information in regard to uh, the comment period, uh, perhaps what they could say, the details of, uh, that would give us the biggest concern or that would impact our modelers, uh, and give some guidance on perhaps the things that modelers might want to be thinking about saying in making public comments. Uh, I'm sure we won't be the only organization making comments about this. Um, other ones do for various reasons. Um, some full-scale uh, organizations might with their members. Uh, some other uh, organizations that are that are not aligned with AMA or not AMA may as well for unmanned uh, aviation, I'm sure, and maybe even some manufacturers. So there will be that comment period. Uh, but that'll be the time to make reasonable, strong cases. And I need to stress that because in the comments, Look, I know, I, hey, I've been flying since I was uh, eight years old, uh, over 50 years now. And, uh, you know, it's important to me. And uh, we've been doing this for 80 years and all those things. And, you know, bringing up uh, America's future aviators and, and and aerospace professionals. But you know what? That doesn't make any difference to the facts. 
And I would just suggest in terms of the comments is to look at the factual basis um, that individuals may see in the proposed rule that don't make sense or that don't follow logic or that something else would be a smarter way to go. And I would just recommend thinking about that um, because that's the things that will make the decisions about, you know, is this a yes or a no in a particular part about the rule? Yeah, and the part that gets me is that these, what I think we all agree are pretty severe approaches to to all this are in reaction to a problem that doesn't actually exist. We haven't had any collisions between model aircraft and full-scale aircraft. And I know there have been close calls and lots of suspected close calls and things like that. I don't know if that's true. I think there's been one or two instances where they're pretty assured that it was a collision. But it it, it is extremely rare, though. Well, regardless, I think I can fix this whole issue with a quick swipe with a red pen. And instead of these rules applying to all UAS, it should be all GPS-equipped or autonomous UAS. Yeah. And once you take out that autopilot feature or anything that says return to home then I think you get rid of 99% of the the situations that people are concerned about. So it all goes back to having a baseline amount of training that allows you to operate the thing on your own without the help of any onboard processors or whatever else. And in learning that, you also learn the do's and don'ts and the basic etiquette and all those things that go along and playing nice with the rest of the sky. Yeah, it seems like the FAA does not want to make a distinction between pure line of sight, recreational flying, and GPS-enabled autonomous, semi-autonomous UAS systems. Yep. I would have much less heartburn over all this if if it focused only on GPS-equipped machines. You know, one thing that I, I think needs to be said here in regard to the question about autonomous flight drones, so to say, so to speak, versus traditional fixed-wing aircraft, is how long the FAA has been interested in this question. And many may not remember, but it has been almost 12 years that the FAA first started looking at this. It was 2007, 2008, when the uh, FAA started an aviation rulemaking committee to look at um, remote flight, unmanned flight. And, you know, that was virtually before a multi-rotor aircraft really came on the scene because they didn't come on the scene except for the last, what, maybe six or seven years, uh, or, or we'll give it eight. So it was in 2007, 2008. And the concern then was about speed, size, weight, and altitudes, those things. And I don't know how that might play into the uh, what was brought up here about how the FAA sees it or making that differentiation, but I think it's important to lay that out there. Um, because their concern is all things in the sky. And they had a concern for unmanned aviation before the drone thing really came on, uh, the way we know it today. Um, I'm not giving them a free pass on that. That's not what I mean to say by that. But uh, I mean to say that, you know, and, and also I should also say that just as I said, my position on the testing board was to represent the modeler. Um, I, I think that's important for us too in terms of, uh, us working with the FAA and AMA has has done that every step of the way where we try to inform them, we try to show them, we try to enlighten them. 
Um, don't forget, though, they got a pretty big mission, um, and sometimes it can be pretty final when they, when there's the, the concern for an accident. Um, and, and maybe that's some of the mindset. I don't know. Um, again, I'm not giving a free, totally free pass, but you know, we have to understand each other's position as we go into this. Well, I think if the FAA truly was concerned about all those factors, what did you say? Uh, speed, size, altitude, and weight. Um, well, they've only addressed it, or they only give exclusions on one category, and that's weight at, what, 255 grams, which is, when you look at how they came up with that number, it's totally nonsensical. Um, so you may be right, but it seems like the solutions they've come up with don't really reflect that. Well, I think what I would say is the solutions might not reflect the way that modelers might think they, where they should have been placed. So weight, well, that's mentioned in the new FAA law. Altitude, that's mentioned in the new FAA law. Weight, that's uh, um, obviously covered in registration. Um, speed, maybe not so much. But and, and it's not to say that what they were looking at 12 years ago mirrors what they've done today. I'm sure they've seen an evolving picture. Um, but those are the factors that they've had in their mind for a long time. Interesting. So, Lee, you've been quiet. Are you still with us? Yes, I'm listening. Okay. Well, Lee, you're, you're probably one of the most versed in the text of the proposed rulemaking. What's some of the things that really stuck out for you? I have a lot of four-letter words and, and such in my, my little text document here. Uh, I, have a, I actually have a notepad here that, that says Lee's interpretation of proposal. And it's very long. But it, it is the fact that the FAA, to simplify their process, basically grouped everything under UAS into one category. And we are one of the three that they're talking about. They're calling it a standard, a standard, excuse me, a standard category of remote identification, a limited category of remote identification, and other. But everything in this proposal that I'm reading, that I'm interpreting, suggests they're trying to do away with everything related to model aircraft, recreational, and make them classify themselves into one of those two which my biggest fear is most modelers would be classified under limited remote identification, which would be internet only, and you have to be within a 400-foot geofence. Like, I mean, and it has to be line of sight at all times. Like so 400 feet high? High, and... away, and, and away. Oh. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's very disheartening, and that's what they're doing here. And... Um, one of the silly methods I you know, described in my head about this is like giving a child a piece of paper that says you can have anything on this Christmas list unless I say no. Well, the problem is the people that this goes, this proposal goes to have no idea what's happening in the model aviation business. They're just congressmen who are reading a section on page 80 that talks about all the fears. There's a huge section in this proposal that talks about all the close calls, all the potential drug trafficking that's happening with drone delivery systems, uh, all the, you know, the, the, the helicopter, the Black Hawk that got hit, that was back in you know, 2017. But they put all these fears in there, and they're basically saying, if we don't have remote ID, we don't know if these UASs are friend or foe. But 
the interpretation here is, or the way I'm reading it, is like the FAA is basically declaring everything as a foe unless you have an ID that states otherwise. And even if you have all that information, it doesn't mean that someone can't shoot you down just for fear. There's just, there's nothing in here to protect the hobbyists. I agree with Eric. There's this whole thing about uh, uh, sanctioned fields. I forget what they call them, but, you know, recreational identified fields. and Safe on- havens. And only CBOs can ask for them. So right now, the only CBO that I know of is the AMA. So the AMA basically is going to be forced to send letters to the FAA and cross your fingers. Bureaucracy doesn't slow it down. They have to get all their fields submitted and hopefully approved because there's no there's not to say that the FAA won't shut half of them down just for spite. You know, just to say, well, we don't think that field should be unlimited. You know, and there's a section way down in here that says after a couple of years, we don't expect fields to be an issue. So we're just going to demand everybody have remote identification. And there's just no way that someone who's flying a little, you know, e-flight aircraft, an apprentice, you know, (laughs) is going to want to put all that crap on there, you know. And my thunder and lightning is over the weight limit. I'm not going to want to put RI stuff on there. And, And I touched on it earlier. I don't want the government to have a list of everything I have simply because these are the planes I built and enjoy and then have a fear that I'm going to have to pay a registration fee on every little foamy I build. And I'm going to reach out to flight test right now, guys. And I don't know if they listen or not, or if anybody else here has a touch with them, but those guys better get their act together and start talking online on videos. If you're not going to support the AMA as a CBO, then you better become a CBO and you better start demanding flight fields for, excuse me, flight fest fields be declared safe havens, or you're going to lose all your fans, all your pilots, because none of your foamy planes are going to have remote IDs. And then you're going to have rogue pilots. And, I, and it, again, I'm, I'm kind of building up my anger here, but I just see a huge wave, a downfall of this hobby because there's just too much crap in this proposal that's just idiotic. And if we don't piece it out and call them on it and take it out and just focus this on commercial drone companies, I, I have no problem with this focusing on Amazon wanting to deliver shoes to some lady who just has to have them within 24 hours. Okay, so that their drones don't cause, come on guys, I mean, be honest here. The ones we're worried about are not the little kids flying a quadcopter in a park. We're worried about these big ass drones that are carrying heavyweight packages that have no care in the world. They're going from point A to point B. You hope they avoid a tree, you hope they avoid birds, and they don't fall on someone's head and kill them. But those are the ones we're going to have problems with. And I'm afraid the FAA is going to say, well, that's just part of the training process. We got to we got to work all the loopholes. We'll figure it out. And and not the people who are flying model airplanes for fun. And I better stop now before I really start, really start getting angry. Take a breath, Lee. Sorry. I just I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't even gotten past halfway on this thing. I mean, that's how crazy it is. My it's just we've got to read all this. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page there that there's probably some some small text some you know, fine print to, and I I just hate to say that this was written with malicious intent but at least the little bit that I understand of it so far just seems to be just right out in the open belligerent to to what we've been saying all along we could work with and to think that that FAA guy who was the head of the UAS office was at the expo and was talking about how he wants to play nice and he has no interest in shutting us down. 
and then this comes out a couple months later that just those two things don't jibe in my head so it's i don't see how anybody could put their name on this without thinking that it's going to be a severe detriment to rc modelers whoever put their hands on this document they have never flown a model aircraft they have never participated in an event or they have never even gone to an AMA field. They have no idea what this is doing. And I'm, my, my thing is, I keep, I'm going back to that section about the fear. They, they talk about all the, the you know, I, I'll tell you, they don't talk about bird strikes in this thing at all. We're trying to talk about th- things that take planes down or kill people. You know, we're not putting remote IDs on birds, guys. <laughs> they want to put them on your toys. That just makes no sense. But there is so much fear factor in this. You know, they're driving the fear into this congressman to say, you've got to sign this or everybody's going to die. That's the kind of attitude that I'm reading from this. So there is, I don't really think anybody who wrote this has a perception of what it's going to do to the hobby. Yeah, and part of what concerns me is that the devices that we're talking about don't exist yet. So I think we have to, or somebody has to approve all this. And this gets signed into law or, you know, whatever the process is, it becomes an official FAA rule before the things that need to be used exist. And do we really know what those things are going to look like? Well, let's not (laughs) – let's be very good at at finding those companies that are offering their services to track the drones and make sure they're not being paid by Amazon or Google and and so forth. I mean, they're going to be working hand in hand. So, and that's the question you ask in the back of your mind, is the impetus of all this uh, safety of the sky or is it to clear the way for a commercial interest? I, I think the answer is a little bit of both. Yeah, there's definitely a national security interest in this. And then it's something that they even outright said. So in a, in a case, that's understandable, but I guess we're going to have to find some sort of happy medium on this because this draconian approach is just not tenable. And I guess what, what are our options going forward? What can we do? Is this something we're going to have to contact our congressmen? Uh, there is an open uh, period for comments, I guess, after the 31st for, it was 60 days, I believe. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely one thing, but uh, we need to have our voices heard. And so what are our paths to have that done? Well, I think like Eric said, I'm sure there'll be an effort to get AMA members to write in and you know, scream at their congresspeople. And hopefully that will have some effect. And also to send your comments to the FAA. I, I remember we did that with the registration. I don't think it had any effect. I mean, comments are just comments. The, you know, the FAA can take whatever they want from them or not. Um, and as several people have said to me, the FAA is going to do what the FAA wants to do. They've been given that authority in this regard, unfortunately. I think it's important to understand a couple of things about how we get to um, uh, registration and so forth and, and people's comments um, and, and when it makes a difference or not. So with the initial uh, FAA registration, uh, that came out, FAA rolled it out. There was uh, basically when um, the FAA lost that case in regard to doing it, registration not being legal, it was on the grounds of the procedures that the FAA took to enact the registration, okay? Uh, 
and it lost on those grounds. And so the FAA had to stop and say, okay, we're going to stop registering right now. Then through, I believe it was a Department of Defense bill, the registration was part of that. Ergo, it becomes legal now. Okay. So right. what the FAA couldn't do through its own administrative procedures, it was then placed in a law that Congress passed and the president signed. So we have registration. In terms of members uh, feedback and that being important, I'll give you a quick example. I think we're all familiar recently with what happened with letters of agreement in controlled airspace. Uh, in that situation, AMA worked with the FAA for several months to identify those locations to work with letters of agreement. And guess what? It didn't work out too too well. Uh, we we're having a lot of issues with uh, um, the altitudes and most all of which we thought were, were being arbitrarily set in controlled airspace. We had our call to action. Um, we involved some lawmakers. Of course, our members wrote to their representatives that AMA provided that information. So modelers and friends could do that. And guess what? Now we've had a series of safety risk management meetings, including one in my district in Buffalo, New York, where those altitudes now are above 400 feet. Um, not all the, the first, uh, originally it was going to be five a week or so ago that were going to be looked at in these SRM meetings locally. Uh, it worked out to be four because one site is, unfortunately, I believe is not longer flying at that, that location. Um, and in all of those instances, they got higher than the 400. Um, some got exactly what they wanted. Some didn't get exactly what they wanted. And they got somewhere in between. Point is, it works. When members reach out, they hear it. Believe me. And so that's why it's very important in regard to the remote ID or other issues that might come up. When when AMA sends out a call to action, when we ask to call, uh, or, and calling works better, by the way, than emails, but to, and particularly to do both of your elected representatives, it makes a difference. Well, that's reassuring. I, Lee and I and Fitz, I guess we've talked in the past about how we did contact our Congress people. And for me, I did it via phone. And I talked to all the representatives I could find. And my phone experiences were very positive. The person on the other end seemed to want to hear what I had to say. And they you know, took the time to ask me questions to clarify and things like that. So I came away from it with a very positive feeling. And that soured some weeks later when I received letters from those offices saying, thank you for your concern. And then basically their summary of the call was completely the opposite of what we had talked about. So I'm not saying I don't believe you, but it's well, just yeah, my personal experience. Yeah, so two things about this. So yeah, I understand your experience, and I've seen that too. You have to understand that the people that answer these phones, and I've been in these offices in Washington, D.C., and had numerous meetings with these representatives or their, generally with their staffers and so forth. You know, it might be an intern that's answering the phone or a lower-level staffer, right. and they can't be committal, right? They're, sure. I can't speak to how they're exactly trained, but, you know, they're nice, they're, they're receptive, they're cordial and all that, but they can't make they can't make commitments to things, right? Um, so, you know, it may seem like a wonderfully positive conversation and then something else completely different comes out. Um, and, and that's why it might happen. I will say that, you know, when you when you do the emails, that's important because they're counted. But I don't think many of them are individually read, to be quite frank with you. Uh, at best, they may be collated into position like for and against or those sorts of things. 
when you call and you're speaking to someone, well, there's probably a better chance that some of that in the staffer's office might percolate up, right, to a chief of staff or someone else in terms of the number of calls and, you know, the tone of the voice, uh, you know, the facts that people are laying out. And they seem to carry more weight. Um, what I did want to, I don't know if I made it clear, but so with the 400-foot altitude thing, the FAA basically came out about three or four months ago and said, you know, in controlled airspace, it's going to be 400 feet. That's basically what was happening with letters of agreement. And we said, well, wait a minute. That's not what the law says. It does not specify 400 feet in controlled airspace. Um, it's up to the letter of agreement. So there was some internal things going on with FAA. We had our call to action. Our members wrote letters. And apparently the FAA's response to that was to have the strategic, uh, excuse me, safety risk management meetings, which they've had some already, which have gotten us over those that 400-foot arbitrary altitude that was set, that limit. So it worked, is my point. Right. And uh, will it work in this case? I don't know. I don't know how much of it will work or, or where. I, can. I don't have a crystal ball. But I, I'm hopeful that through providing, you know, factual information to the FAA and the lawmakers, uh, wherever the case may be, uh, in whatever call to action that AMA puts out, you know, that is what tip scales is the factual information uh, that's logical and that is a very, you know, cogent request. Yeah. And I hope I didn't make it sound like it's not worthwhile to do those things because I certainly intend to make that same effort this go around. So, yeah. I've, I talked to Chad Boudreau and Tyler Dobbs and said, guys, if you need boots on the ground, if you need to, you know, have us in the FAA's face with a, a conglomerate of hobby enthusiasts, not just regular builders, but we're talking about hobby shops and manufacturers and the professionals who, you know, make somewhat of a living on <laughs> on contests and so forth. You need to have those people there. I, I know that the AMA is doing their best when they can get in a chair in Congress and sit with the FAA and, and, and congressmen to talk about it. But I don't think they're seeing the people who are affected. That's my opinion. I just don't feel like they understand how much this is going to hurt. And I really hope something comes about. Talk with some of these, like Horizon Hobby. Get with them and say, guys, we need representatives to show up on a certain day at a certain time at a certain place, and let's do it. Let's, let's talk about this and say these is what you really need to – honestly, I just want to say bring back recreational hobbyists as a category. Please, somehow, some way, find a way to not burden those people who are interested in the hobby, especially those who have been in this hobby for 40-plus years. Absolutely. The unified voices definitely make a difference. There's no question about that. Maybe we need a million modeler march on TC. You <laughs> Bring your drones. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So, Eric, do you have any suggestions for us and the listeners in terms of what our next step should be here? Well, for the moment, um, I would say uh, stay tuned for AMA communications about that. Um, you know, as it was mentioned, this this NPRM is – you know, hundreds of pages long. There's a lot to digest. There's a lot to get right. We don't want to send modelers prematurely off in wrong directions and, you know, suggesting wrong messages or concerns. Mm -hmm. So it'll take a little while to, to get through all that and, and to formulate the best responses. But stay tuned for that. Um, you know, you can see that AMA has a Facebook page. We have our government affairs uh, uh, section of our uh, website, modelaircraft.org. 
And uh, it's probably not going to be, this is going to be too short a time period to see anything in Model Aviation Magazine. But I would say look towards the uh, electronic and, and social media for more information. Okay. And not to use scare tactics, but of what you understand so far about this, do you think that this is a moment that that absolutely uh, demands our attention and concern? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, okay. There's no question about that. Um, you know, we did a pretty good job with, with 400 feet and members responding. I think uh, this is another one of those cases um, that we'll need to. Again, it's going to come down to, you know, what we digest out of the uh, out of the proposed rule to, you know, w where we uh, decide to align our, our messages to the FAA um, and so forth. But it definitely is uh, one of those defining pivotal moments. It will be. Okay. And I wanted to give you a personal thanks for your trip to Buffalo to talk with the FAA because at least one of those clubs that you brokered an agreement for is the one that's just a few miles from my house. Well, yeah, uh, the Brookview RC Club. It was a pleasure to be out there. Um, Did you go to the field? I was not able to. Um, okay. You know, it's about a five-hour drive for me from from where my home is. Right. Uh, so I came out uh, the night before, and we had a very kind of a minor snowstorm, but right. uh, got there in the evening, and we started um, uh, in the morning, and uh, we were very happy with the outcome. Um, you know, that's not 100% finalized. It will be. There's obviously the uh, LOA has to go to D.C. and they review it and so forth. But I, I can see nothing that I'm aware of that will they'll get in the way of these current LOAs and these SRM meetings and the way they've been uh, uh, the outcomes of the meetings. OK, great. Thank you for taking that effort. Oh, you're welcome. It's you know, I got it's funny. People get different things out of their hobbies. For some, it's, you know, the joy of being with other people. For some, it's, you know, what they can do with their flight, their their aircraft, or the challenge of that, right, or being in competition. Um, for others, it's, you know, training, you know, new people in the hobby, uh, bringing in kids or whatever, or, or, or maybe giving to a charity through their programs. And I guess for me, and I have to say for, I guess, all my peers on the executive council and the AVPs and the leader members and others in AMA, it's about sort of paying back by, by working, and we're all volunteers, by the way. I hope everybody knows that. Um, working to promote our hobby. Um, no, things aren't always perfect. We get it. It's tough. We're a big, uh, you know, we have a lot of members. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes communication cannot be what we would want it to be. and um, But we always work towards that goal, right, of promoting it. And so that's the joy I get out of it is being able to make things happen and, and make things uh, better for the future of model aviation. Great. I, I'm so glad that there's people like you who are willing to do that. Well, it's a pleasure. It really is. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Let's close this thing out with a joke or something fun. <laughs> like Lee's probably standing on the ledge of his top floor. You won't get a joke out of me. Come up with something, Terry. <laughs> Two rabbis and a monk walk into a bar. <laughs> and punch the FAA guy in the face. <laughs> all right, all right. So, Fitz, take us home, buddy. It seems like we have a real call of arms on this. And so uh, we look forward to see what the AMA has in store after their interpretation uh, of reading these proposed rules. We really appreciate you, Eric, for coming in and talking to us on this and being on a seat so hot you could probably fry egg on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate your insight and input. Uh, I don't envy your position, uh, but we, uh, we, we look to you guys to, to, to fight the good fight for us and, uh, we'll, we'll do our part to what we can do as well. Uh, hopefully we get the word out. And so this whole purpose of us coming together today and we hope to get the word out, let all our community know what's going on. And as they say, as GI Joe says, knowledge is half the power, right? So <laughs> knowing is half the battle. Half the battle. That's it. Because no, knowing is half the battle. There's your joke. <laughs> so uh, again, once again, thanks for joining us. Hopefully, we'll have you on the show again sometime in the future. Maybe we can get an update on things going on. Happier, happier notes. And happier notes. Happy time. Don't Absolutely. Worry. Good times are coming. From his cell in the FAA basement, <laughs> his one phone call will be into the show. <laughs> Uh, well, Eric, you got, got any last words before we close this out? No. Well, I guess to say, you know, I hope everyone had wonderful holidays uh, and looking forward to a safe new year. And, uh, you know, the winter flying season is upon us. And so go out there, keep, keep them flying, I guess is the best I can tell everyone. And um, be safe. All right. I couldn't think of anything better to say myself. So on that note, we'll see everybody next time and have a good new year and a 2020 coming up. Enjoy. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions or listen to our other great podcasts. Where you will also find links to our iTunes and social media sites. Thanks for listening.